Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are very excited to welcome to the podcast my old friends, Brian Cuddy and Frederick Logaval. Brian is lecturer in security studies at Macquarie University in Australia. And Fred is the Lawrence D. Belfer Professor of International Affairs and Professor of History at Harvard University. And we're here to talk about their recent edited collection, The Vietnam War in the Pacific World. Brian and Fred, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's good to be with you. Um, so probably the first question that listeners who have no doubt listened to our Sean Fear uh, hosted Vietnam series will have is why is this book needed in the historiography of Vietnam? As, as everyone listening is probably well aware, there are libraries of books written about Vietnam. So maybe you guys could situate the literature itself in its broad sweep what have people said about Vietnam? And then we could talk about how your book contributes to this massive literature. So I guess both, uh, you know, both Fred and I are Americanists. So we study, tend to study the American uh, angle on the war first and foremost. And I guess, uh, you know, from a US perspective, that's where the bulk of the historiography and the bulk of the writing has appeared, right, coming from the American perspective, starting during the war and then and then continuing uh, continuing on afterwards. And as you say, Danny, you know, libraries of of books on the Vietnam War, uh, of which Fred has contributed a few a few to that library himself. But sort of in recent times, you know, we uh, the sort of move towards um, taking more account, particularly of Vietnamese perspectives uh, of the war. Uh, and so we've seen a Vietnamese turn and within that a South Vietnamese turn within the literature. But I think uh, Fred and I, uh, with this book, what we're thinking is recognising uh, that the war takes place in a regional context. And so trying to expand that literature uh, outwards a bit, right, and recognise sort of the ripple effects that the war had uh, throughout the region. Now, there is, of course, uh, already a literature on the Vietnam War's relationship to the wider region, but sort of much like the American uh, alliance structure in the Pacific, a sort of hub and spoke alliance structure, uh, as opposed to that NATO uh, uh, structure in the Atlantic world. In the Pacific, it's uh, very much sort of focused on bilateral relationships between Washington and, and various states in the region, right? And the historiography sort of follows that as well. I think what we wanted to try and do is actually gather some of that together and actually sit back and look at the regional context as a whole. Right? So you had um, within the uh, the American-led uh, military coalition, you had, of course, South Korea provided uh, troops, Australia and New Zealand, uh, and other smaller contributions, uh, Thailand, the Philippines. And then, of course, you also had... Uh, R&R locations, rest and recreation locations around the region, which affected uh, economies, uh, had questions of sovereignty, questions of uh, domestic politics. So we look at uh, a lot of these different issues, uh, as well, of course, as what the region meant for uh, for the uh, American strategy, right? Part of the 
the justification for, for waging this war was that it was to save the region from communism. Right? So we, uh, some of the chapters dig into that justification a little bit and look at that justification from the perspective of the region um, uh, as well as from, uh, from Washington. So uh, in situating uh, the Vietnam War within this regional context, I think we give, uh, we give uh, a better appreciation of uh, why the war was fought, why it didn't need to be fought, um, uh, and the effects of the, uh, of the war in the region. And we sort of finish by a few chapters looking at uh, refugee issues and how the war uh, spurred uh, the movement of people around the Asia-Pacific region um, coming uh, in the years after the war. Yeah, I, I guess I would just add, that was a, a great uh, summary by Brian. I, I just would make two points, I guess. One of them, Brian already made, but it's this idea that the war was justified by the United States initially on regional grounds. The domino theory that, that maybe we'll discuss, and that was just critically important, especially in the early years, was all about the regional effects of allowing this part of the world to fall to communism, or the perceived regional effects. And in an ironic way, the war did have the effects on the region that were momentous, just not in the way that U.S. officials uh, articulated, which I think is really interesting. And the second point I would just make is that it's, I think, the volume we want to speak to the actually global effects of this war. I mean, you know, I'm from Sweden, which, which is where I'm sitting tonight. And, you know, this is a small country in Scandinavia. And right here in Sweden, the Vietnam War was debated ferociously uh, by, you know, parents and their kids, and there were demonstrations in the streets. This conflict, waged principally by the United States in terms of, in terms of Western power uh, against Vietnamese, had this incredible effect um, all over the world. And this volume focuses obviously particularly on the region of the, of the, of the, of the Pacific. I think it might make sense to start then talking about the region, particularly because, uh, you know, in, in this country, God's own United States, there's been this so-called pivot to Asia in the last 10 years. But of course, the United States has a, a much longer standing quote-unquote, interest in Asia. So, so could you talk about that a bit, the particular regional dynamics, first perhaps from an American perspective, but then from the regional actors' perspectives themselves, South Korea, Japan, Indonesia, New Zealand, Australia. What do we need to know about the region itself? Well, I think... Uh, um... You know, what's important from an American perspective is that coming out of World War II, when the United States was already then in 1945, this, this behemoth, uh, and it, it had happened in many respects so quickly that the United States occupies this position of primacy, um, I think there's a perception in Washington in the Truman years when the French are, French are beginning to fight their war in Indochina, that not only is the outcome in Indochina of critical importance to U.S. national security, but the region, the broader region in which this is taking place, Southeast Asia, East Asia, 
um, uh, has tremendous future importance for, for, for us, for the United States. And I think that is, is, is continued. And that's what leads to what then later becomes the domino theory that Eisenhower articulates in 1954, but which is really there already in the late 1940s, just not in name. What's the importance, Fred? Could you just be specific yeah. about, is it just to extract resources? Is it to be hegemon? Like, what exactly, because this is now the big conversation in D.C. today. What the hell do we actually want out of this region? Yeah. I mean, I think it is in part, it's not any one thing, and I would be really interested to see what Brian has to say on this on this really important question. I don't think it's it's either or. I think it is in part about resources. Eisenhower spoke to that compellingly on more than one occasion. Um, it's about uh, a perception that the Cold War is a kind of zero-sum game. So any gain for communists, whether they be directly supported by Moscow or, or later Beijing or not, is a corresponding loss for the West. And so therefore, it's also about credibility. Uh, it's in part, I think, for, for, for American officials, also about domestic politics, uh, which is something I've written a fair amount I think all of these things come into play in terms of the the idea that this part of the world is of, of increasing importance as time passes. What would you add, uh, Brian? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, when you sort of uh, see some of the uh, you know some of the uh, justifications, some of the DoD films and that coming out uh, from the mid sixties, resources play a role. But I think um, the fact that so many um, uh, Reasons are thrown on the table indicates a, a sort of strategic incoherence coming out of Washington as well, right? And I think some of the chapters in the book deal with this, thinking particularly of, of Mark Lawrence's chapter on Indonesia, right? Indonesia was sort of called the greater prize, right? Vietnam, in a way, was a way of saving Indonesia from communism. Um, and so, uh, but despite the rhetoric of that, when you actually got down into the nitty-gritty, it was a little bit unsure exactly how uh, Indonesia played a role in the sort of the American strategic vision. So there were lots of things thrown on the table, um, and not all of them uh, made strategic sense um, uh, at the time or, or from, from, our, from our viewpoint afterwards. I mean, the thing that I would sort of add uh, to sort of overlay what, what Fred said is uh, this process of decolonization that, that happens after 1945 in the region, right? And the, and, the, and the sense that the region is sort of up for grabs and these competing developmental models uh, that we're seeing, right? The Asia Pacific is, uh, is sort of a key theater for that, that uh, ideological um, and material contest um, to play out. And so, you know, one thing that the book, I think, uh, shows is the different the different ways in which American uh, power was um, uh, was challenged, but also enhanced by that process of decolonization. Right, that shift to more informal uh, means of influence, as well as having these um, uh, these sort of uh, points of territorial power around the Pacific. Um, uh, how uh, American power was going to be maintained um, in this sort of new era of uh, an end to formal imperialism. Yeah, there's an interesting change over time that I found in, in my own research, but I think that also is borne out in terms of some of the chapters in the book. But where the notion of falling dominoes recedes in importance, that is to say, in the Kennedy years and certainly then in the Johnson years and beyond Nixon, you don't read very much in the documents at all about the idea that if one country falls, 
the other countries that are next to it will fall. And then those, you know, countries next to them will fall, the idea of falling dominoes. I think U.S. strategists begin to say, that's eh, not actually how it's working. And so then it becomes a more psychological thing about credibility and prestige and much less about territorial losses in the region, uh, at least as far as American strategists are concerned. That's pretty interesting. So this is a really compelling question, because on one hand, there's the question of why did the United States fight this war? And on the other hand, there's the question of how did regional dynamics shape the course of the war itself? So in that first question, what does the regional turn help us understand about why the United States fought the war? Because my, my read, Fred, of your scholarship is that what drove, you know, you're talking about Kennedy, that's before the United States formally, I mean, obviously it's been there for a long time. Your scholarship has shown that, but it's not what most people think about as being the Vietnam War, the Second Indochina War, starting in the mid, you know, after Tonkin. So does the regional perspective reform our understanding of why the United States fought the war or not, just to ask it directly? Is it still mostly about credibility, prestige, domestic politics, the Democratic Party? Yeah, I don't know how, how uh, I'll be interested to, to see what Brian has to say on this. I guess my answer to your question is no. That is to say, I don't think the regional turn uh, has shifted my own view of what led the United States to wage and then perpetuate large-scale war uh, in, in Southeast Asia. Um, I looked for, to use Indonesia as an example, I looked for evidence that the United States intervened massively with air power and ground troops because it was concerned about the situation in, in Indonesia, that it wanted to uh, make sure that the rest of the region uh, stayed out of communist hands. And I didn't see much evidence of this. Um, I don't think that the evidence is really there. So in terms of, if this is a really relatively narrow question you're asking, Danny, about the reasons for U.S. military intervention, uh, I am not seeing much evidence of that being uh, a kind of regionally um, oriented um, uh, or, or, or that the region is, is, the, is causing concerns about re the region is causing the United States to do this. But I'm curious, Brian, what your take is. Yeah, I think you definitely need to distinguish between sort of justifications and causes, right? And so the the um, uh, the region was a big justification for uh, America going into the war. What, uh, what sort of role did it play in causation is a, uh, a sort of different question, right? I think I don't disagree with Fred, but I think some of the chapters in the volume sort of do perhaps um, by you know stepping back from the purely American context, right, and the, the purely decision-making context in Washington, it just sort of uh, contextualizes out of it, right? So I think of Wang Ching Noi's chapter, which is sort of based on his book, Arc of Containment, right, which is tracing um, uh, tracing a, a much greater uh, connection and ideas between the British Empire and this part of the world, and then, and then this American Empire, if that's what you want to call it, that follows, right? And so tracing those connections um, I think helps us to contextualize what the what the Americans are doing and I know others have uh, um, done similar stuff with regard to the French in Indochina uh, but I think that British connection is important and seeing um, uh, and seeing the you know the 
the feedback between British and American officials on the on this idea of the domino theory, for example, how that begins as a British idea and then gets picked up by the Americans um, as a justification. So yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't disagree with Friedra. I think it does get us a, a more sort of a complex and nuanced view, even though you know we're not trying to get away from the the brute fact of American power um, and the importance of American decision making. Let's actually talk then about what the regional perspective does positively do for our understanding of the war. What what facets of the war does it illuminate in new ways? And um, please feel free to either talk generally or refer to the chapters, but I think it'd be useful for the audience to understand what new things do we learn from adopting this different regional approach? Well, I think... Um you know, going back to this question of justifications and causes, you know, one, I mean, it allows us to test some of these uh, justifications, to test some of these arguments that were made, right? If the Americans were making the argument that uh, waging the Vietnam War was necessary to save the region, for example, then let's have a look at the region. Uh, was the region saved by the American war effort in uh, in Vietnam, right? And, and uh Matt's Fibbage's uh, chapter, for instance, looks at this idea of the buying time thesis, right? The idea uh, that, uh, again, started to, to arise during the war as the war sort of um, uh, got away from the Americans, this idea that it was still worth waging because it bought time for the region to develop and to solidify into an anti-communist uh, orientation, uh, even though Vietnam was lost. The rest of the region uh, uh, was tilted towards uh, the Americans and, and maintained this uh, this anti-communist front. So a regional perspective allows us actually to dig into those arguments, right, and to and to see, you know, was this true? And then and then as some of the chapters do, some of the earlier chapters, we can sort of, as I said with uh, Mark Lawrence's chapter, you can see that actually uh, the argument about Indonesia, for example, and as Fred indicated before, uh, was very uh, strategically muddled and incoherent. Uh, Gabriel Westcott uh, looks at um, uh, sort of similar internal deliberations uh, within uh, within Washington, and also finds a sort of a uh, an incoherence, right? That the the region shifts very, uh, in some in some respects, quite rapidly from being the reason the reason for America needing to be there, very quickly to the reason why America needs to get out of there, right? Because they're not seeing that the region is supporting what the Americans are doing, and so you sort of get that you see that incoherence sort of uh, come out. Uh, and then, as I said, uh, chapters like uh, Matt's chapter on the buying time thesis, right? Did it actually do the sort of things that uh, it was saying it was going to do? And, and Matt's sort of is, is uh, writes quite a sort of nuanced chapter uh, that, yeah, there's some uh, there's some sort of evidence for uh, the war effort is helping um, uh, economically and, and sort of the political regimes. But also thinking through that, that uh, some of those uh, effects weren't exactly all the uh, the positive effects that uh, that the Americans and those who who cite this buying time thesis uh, claim, right? And then, of course, towards the end of the book, uh, we see that extraordinary movement of people around the region and the uh, the dislocation uh, that that caused. So, I think it. it it allows us to, um, yeah, that would be the first thing I would say. It allows us to test and to sort of examine some of these these arguments that were made at the time and, and continue to be made um, up until the present. Yeah, I was at a I was at a conference in Washington about a month ago, 
marking basically the the 50th anniversary of the end of the American uh, involvement and the buying time thesis that Matz's chapter discusses, as Brian just pointed out, was brought forth positively by a couple of people who were part of the conference. That is to say, this bought time for the what would become the, the Asian tigers. It bought time for several countries in the region to stabilize, to experience economic growth. And so there is still today, as Brian just pointed out, support for that notion. And I think Matt's chapter, which looks at this both in the positive sense, but also questions various aspects of it, is to my mind a really important contribution. In examining regional dynamics, what differences do you see between countries that you know are broadly, at least in terms of the imagination of the North Atlantic world associated with the North Atlantic world like Australia and New Zealand versus countries like South Korea, Japan, and Indonesia? Do you see a difference there in sort of the, the racial imaginaries applied to them, how they were treated? Um, because I think that this is a very interesting region to explore those types of dynamics. I mean, if you think about just recently with Ukraine, a lot of the arguments about why people in this country care about Ukraine is because they were white. Uh, And it was, you know, a war in Europe as opposed to a war elsewhere. So could you maybe talk about those dynamics you see in the region itself? Yeah, sure. And I think uh, uh, several of the chapters sort of dig into these uh, these, uh, intra-regional dynamics and the different sort of uh, visions that are coming out of different places of the region. So uh, Greg Lockhart's chapter on Australia, for instance, is, is... Looking at how this, uh, this strategy um, um, or this uh, this threat assessment, uh, let's call it, uh, was actually a race based threat assessment, right? And, and building from Wen Cheng's um, work on on the domino theory, looking at how that uh, was constructed was actually a, it was actually a race based fear that was overlaid with a sort of a red um, a red scare type threat um, fear. Uh, and so that Australian dynamic of uh, um, wanting, I guess, to use this context in a way to sort of reinvigorate uh, imperial dynamics without formal empire is um, uh, something that certainly comes through in, in, in Greg's chapter. But even, um, you know, even going outside of sort of the white um, sort of former dominions of the British Empire, Australia, New Zealand, it's interesting to see some of the sort of the, how the war affect some of those other cultural hierarchies in the region, right? So uh, chapters from Jason Lim and um, and Alice Kim talk about Taiwan and South Korea and their relationship uh, with South Vietnam and how the war reformed some of these um, uh, hierarchies, right? And how the war, for example, within South Korea, uh, there's sort of some cultural... Um, uh, she, she reads a particular short story, but to get at some of how... This created negative impressions of, of Vietnamese within South Korea, right? So you're getting that the wars sort of creating the different impressions of uh, different countries around the region, reforming some of those cultural hierarchies. So it's not just a, a white thing, uh, but yeah, I think there's definitely certainly in the early chapters from Wen Cheng and, and Greg, we see uh, we see how race plays into this uh, for sure. I mean, a, a related point one could make, again, going to the to the American context for a minute, is that the the Johnson administration tried very hard to get more foreign troops uh, into the fighting. 
partly for domestic political reasons, but also because it, they thought that it would actually be better for the war effort to have more countries' troops on the ground. And they used a program called the More, Fla- more Flags Program, is what they initiated. And what's striking about it is how little success they had, broadly speaking. In other words, how difficult it was to get countries in the region and elsewhere to see this as sufficiently important that they would they would commit their own ground forces to this. They had some of that, but far less success than they than, than they wanted, which speaks to I think how leaders uh, in other countries saw the stakes and also saw the possibilities for military success against Hanoi differently than the Americans did. So here's a question, Fred. I know you like counterfactual history. So let's say no Vietnam War. What does this region look like? And that might help us illuminate how the Vietnam War reshaped regional dynamics and perhaps pushed it in a particular direction. Well, you know, it's a really interesting question, actually. I wonder how Brian will respond to this. And in a sense, it goes back to the buying time thesis. So again, the, the, the... the, the issue that Matz addresses so well in his chapter is really, in a sense, it's, it's really based on a, on a counterfactual question. And I'm skeptical of this buying time thesis. In other words, if there's no Vietnam War, I'm not at all convinced that the other countries that supposedly benefited from the time that was bought um, would have been any worse off in the absence of war. Um, and... So I think it's it's equally plausible, if not more plausible, that you would have ex- you would have seen the same kind of um, economic growth, let's say, um, from these places, even in the absence of war. Never mind, of course, the degree to which uh, countless lives would have been saved, millions of lives ultimately, in terms of the fighting, in terms of the the effects on um, American politics, American society. I mean, the, the, the ramifications of this are huge, but if we're focusing just on the region, I'm skeptical that the result would have been, that would have brought the kind of harm that the proponents of the buying time thesis hold. Yeah, I think I agree. And I think that's, um, uh, you know, one of the key messages that comes out of not just Matt's chapter on, on the buying time thesis, but on, on, on various chapters that, uh, uh, again, on, on, on Indonesia, on the places that actually, um, you know, the region had tilted towards the United States um, or was in the process of uh, sort of strongly tilting towards the the United States before that sort of mass injection of troops in 1965. And so was that whole whole process necessary to, you know, quote, unquote, save the region uh, from communism, right? The the idea that um, these uh, states would have sort of fallen like dominoes had the U.S. not being there, I think, is is one that uh, the chapters in this volume uh, pretty well um, uh, uh, dismiss, I think, and, and do a good job of dismissing. So I think that's one thing. But then, so um, if the Vietnam War wasn't necessary to do the things that the US uh, wanted it to do, what other things did it do? Right, and then some of the chapters, I think, towards certainly in the second half of the volume get at some of the um, perhaps unintended consequences of the war. I mean, Fred mentioned and, and certainly just the the bare fact of this extraordinary loss of life uh, and damage right we have uh, three chapters on on this extraordinary movement of people 
out of the region after 1975, or, or sorry, out of uh, Vietnam and around and around the region after 1975. We also see what it means for the development of these economies and states, right? So, uh, so it did allow for more authoritarian development, uh, and so, um, and so the war in that sense put some of these countries on on trajectories that, uh, that they might not have been. Obviously, counterfactuals are pretty uh, uh, are pretty tricky to sort of uh, figure out where exactly they would have ended up. But certainly, the war, and as some of these chapters. Uh, Joey Long's chapter on Singapore I'm thinking about, or um, uh, Chris Lovins's chapter on South Korea, they show how the war was sort of instrumental uh, in developing a particular uh, particular configuration of domestic politics and economics within those countries. Two questions. Um, how did the war actually inform the development of politics and economics in those countries? And you could just pick one to give an, ex- uh, an example. Uh, and then this is probably more of a question for Fred, and, and it's almost a general question about U.S. power, which is why did American policymakers misunderstand the region so much? I mean, and this is a question that goes to the core of U.S. foreign policy just seems like Americans from Vietnam to Iraq and everywhere in between, they don't really get these, these regions. And I understand like if the answer is for domestic political reasons or just domestic national based reasons, they, they do these things, but there always seems to be a foundational misunderstanding of what is actually going on abroad. So you guys could take that in whatever order you wish. Yeah. It's a very important question that you ask, Danny, really important. I guess I would, challenge you the 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 sort of um, pretext of the question or i would i would qualify what you just said uh, in the following way um in one important respect and i think this actually also applies to to afghanistan and to to, to iraq um as well more recent interventions in one important respect i think u.s officials did understand much more than they let on. So when Robert McNamara tells us in his in his memoir, he basically says, if only we had known, if only we had understood the dynamics in both North Vietnam and South Vietnam, he basically he's saying, we wouldn't have done this. Well, in fact, he's selling himself short in the sense that the Robert McNamara that I see in the, in the, in the evidence uh, was all too aware uh, of the dynamics at play and was all too aware of the weaknesses uh, of the Saigon government and the, the obstacles in the way of success for the United States. And I don't think he was alone. I think uh, the presidents themselves understood more than they let on. Their top advisors knew, the military leadership knew. And so, in a sense, it almost deepens the mystery for me of how this thing happened that they got themselves into this, in a sense, with eyes wide open. Um, uh, I think, you know, I don't want to overstate the point, because I think you're also correct, Danny, to say that there is, nevertheless, on some level, uh, a great deal of, of, um, uh, that we have to puzzle over why U.S. officials acted in the way they did, and there was stuff they clearly did not understand. I guess my point simply is that 
that um, they knew more than they let on. They understood more than perhaps we tend to to say in hindsight. They, hindsight that they understood, and the task becomes then explaining why they nevertheless proceeded to do this year after bloody year. And, and that the explanance is then domestic situations, personal relationships, domestic politics, yeah. perceptions. I, I think so. I mean, one of the things I've suggested somewhere or other is that we can speak of credibility, but not in in the usual, not merely in the usual way that we do, which is America's national credibility. But you actually need to think of credibility cubed. So it's 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 America's credibility internationally, it's domestic political credibility, and it's personal credibility. And I think to understand this terrible chapter in American history and American foreign policy, I think you have to consider credibility in all three of those dimensions. And I actually think myself, I may be a minority of one, uh, that in some ways the international credibility is the least important of those in explaining why the United States went down this path and then stayed on on, on the path. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I think uh, obviously uh, uh, both Danny and Fred have written on, on, on uh, together on, on sort of the, the importance of domestic politics and recentering the US. Uh, and, you know, we, we sort of bring that into that introductory chapter as well. I guess I'll answer your two questions by maybe also linking them, right? And then also, yes, I understand the importance of domestic politics, but let's, um, you know, let's not forget um, what's going on outside the United States. So, uh, you know, the country, for example, you know, what is. You asked the question, what, is, what does the war actually mean for the development of, of economies and societies? So let's take uh, Joey Long's chapter on Singapore, right? The war, in a way, allowed Lee Kuan Yew to consolidate power and his political party, DPP, to consolidate power, um, or at least played into that consolidation of power and played into this development of a, sort of a Singapore model of, um, uh, of political economy in the region. Now... People like Lee Kuan Yew were also uh, important uh, in talking to these Americans, right? It's not just that the Americans are having these conversations in Washington amongst themselves. Yeah, I, I don't disagree uh, with both of you that that's uh, incredibly important. But Lee Kuan Yew was playing into those conversations. So in mid-1966, for example, he goes to the United States, he goes on tours, and he talks. He's one of the first people to articulate this buying time thesis, right? He says that what the Americans are doing in uh, in Vietnam is great for Southeast Asia because it's buying time for countries like Singapore uh, to develop. Of course, that's a development along a particular trajectory that Lee Kuan Yew favors. So that's so that's not to take away from the argument uh, that you're making about the importance of domestic politics, but just to add another layer that uh, these regional voices are important in. Uh, and being picked up as, you know, extra justifications in the American debate, uh, in some cases maybe um, tweaking the American debate. Uh, but I think, um, I think those voices are still, uh, still important in, in, different, uh, in different ways. Yeah, and I, I want to I I just um, underscore the importance of what Brian just said. And, and you know, I think it's, it's, it speaks to one of, the, uh, one of the reasons, Danny, why we wanted to do this volume is that so much of the literature, and I think we even refer to this in our introduction, so much of the literature, and I guess I'm guilty of what I'm about to say, so much of it focuses on the origins of the war, uh, the escalation of the war, 
so much of it is America centric, and there's been less attention paid to the legacy, uh, to the consequences of, 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 of the fighting, uh, and to the legacy of the war. And in particular, I guess what we wanted to focus here was on the consequences of the fighting, the legacy of the fighting in the region itself. Uh, and we we were just thrilled with the people we were able to to recruit for this who came to the conference in Sydney and then, of course, who produced um, the chapters for the volume. And so uh, even though some of my answers to, to, in our discussion have been still quite America-centric and focused on why the U.S. did what it did, the volume is trying, in a sense, to do something much broader and maybe we could wrap up with another meta question, which is that Vietnam War historiography, I mean, all historiography is political, but Vietnam War historiography is especially political. And what's been so interesting to me is that it does not fall at all <laughs> along expected political lines. So just to give a demonstration, the sort of international and transnational turns are, I think, coded as quote-unquote left, but oftentimes this winds up giving agency to the South Vietnam government, which is oftentimes coded as right. So you have these various strange political permutations. So I was just wondering if you could talk for a little bit, in, I'm not asking for personal opinions, but kind of just more analytical. Where does the state of the, the politics of Vietnam historiography in 2023 stand? Um, you know, the new left critique was the left, then you have the actually the war was good, was the right, then you have the left international, but it's actually in defense of a right wing regime. So uh, any thoughts you had on that, I would just be interested in sort of the meta take. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I see what you're meaning about sort of the, the sort of the you know the the difficulty of lining up the politics. I mean, I, I think you know what's happening there. Well, one of the things, not the only thing that's happening. Obviously, I think you're right that uh, Vietnam War historiography is uh, you know uh, the politics are there in front of you as you're doing this, right? But um, uh, but I think as we get further away, you are some of the this more uh, recent scholarship is is able to step back from some of those um, from some of those earlier sort of political historiographical debates about orthodoxy and revisionism, uh, and actually just look at the actors and agents themselves. Right. So yeah, I think you're right. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, the Vietnamese turn, South Vietnamese turn, is looking at and you know you mentioned Sean Fear's name before, looking at what's happening in. Uh, in South Vietnam, right? Heather Stir is another one uh, looking at Saigon uh, and the politics going on uh, on there. Yeah, I mean, what, what, how that sort of plays into the politics of the moment uh, is complex, right? And it doesn't, as you say, it doesn't sort of line up. I don't know if it needs to line up, or if it, if, if there's any, uh, or if there's any particular uh, sort of deeper meaning beyond trying to understand you know, the complicated nature of this historical episode uh, better. And I guess, you know, if we can understand the history better, are you, uh, is that going to help us, um, uh, is that going to help us come to a better political analysis? I mean, I guess, you know, why do we study history? I guess we would hope so. Yeah, I, you know, I guess what strikes me, Danny, is that it remains as political as it remains. Somehow I thought, uh, when I started all of this in graduate school many, many years ago, that we were moving beyond this highly politicized uh, approach to the war, left versus right, those who believed that 
you know, the war was, was winnable. It was maybe even won in 1970, 71. Um, and versus those, the more orthodox view, which said this was a mistake. Uh, at, the, at, at the very least, it was a mistake. Maybe it was a crime. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, no, we're moving beyond this now because now we're going to be relying on archives and now we're going to have perspective and we're going to have detachment. Um, and we're not going to be refighting the war at every academic conference. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm surprised and a little bit maybe dismayed that it remains as politicized as it is, which is not to say that there isn't superb scholarship going on. I think it's, it's, there's so much good material, so much good uh, stuff happening, both in books and articles, and that'll continue to happen. Um, people relying on, on Vietnamese sources, and American sources, French sources, sources from uh, other countries. Um, it's great, but it does trouble me the degree to which um, this, uh, this remains a highly charged area of research. Um, and that, I think, is not something, as I said, that I expected when I started all of this, and it's not something that I would expect maybe to see in 2023. Yeah, I mean, maybe one of the things, you know, there's sort of a, a distinction, you know, possibly, you know, there's a serious scholarship that's going on that is perhaps uh, recognising greater complexity, but there's also just the question of memory sort of overlaid on that, right? So uh, one of the chapters, Mia Martin Hobbs's chapter, looks at veterans going back to Vietnam after the war, right, and how in the American context and the Australian context, those trips back as uh, as tourists after the war actually just reinforce some of those existing uh, uh, existing political positions that were formed during the war, right? So in, in some respects, that, that process of, of deliberately reflecting on the history and the memory of Vietnam only, only reinforces those, uh, those, uh, those political positions that have been built up. It's politics all the way down. <laughs> Brian Cuddy and Fred Logoval, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, please check out their book, The Vietnam War in the Pacific World. See you all soon. Bye.